In a bipartisan vote, House lawmakers approve a deal to raise the debt ceiling and avoid a national default. The plan now heads to the Senate. It's Thursday, June 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, a federal judge today hears arguments about the DACA program, which gives temporary legal status to people brought into the U.S. as children. Also this hour. I just most sincerely wish that I didn't have to fear the place that I go to protect my health. Massachusetts people with chronic illnesses want COVID mask mandates restored at healthcare facilities. And the U.S. Army is fighting a big enemy in housing and offices, mold. Our standard, if someone is put in a, a work order request, someone is put in a report of mold, we will have a certified expert responding to them in less than 24 hours. Sunny, near 90 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. After passing the House on a bipartisan vote, the debt ceiling bill is now headed to the Senate. But it is a race against the clock to get it passed and onto the president's desk for his signature before the U.S. is forecast to run out of money to pay its bills. That would happen on Monday, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is urging the chamber to pass it fast. There's been a very good vote in the House of Representatives. We, I hope we can move the bill quickly here in the Senate and bring it to the president's desk as soon as possible. There's almost no room for a delay, and the goal is to pass the bill by Friday night. And though senators were planning on a three-day weekend, they would stay in town to work on passing the bill. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell echoed the urgency of passing the bill, telling his fellow Republican senators, time is of the essence. A federal judge in Houston today will hear arguments from the state of Texas about the future of the DACA program. As Rebecca Noel from Houston Public Media reports, today's hearing comes after the Biden administration implemented a rule last year to fortify protections for its current recipients. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program allows undocumented individuals brought to the U.S. before the age of 16 to avoid deportation and apply for renewable work permits. U.S. District Judge Andrew Hainan previously ruled the Obama administration implemented DACA unlawfully. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld that decision last October. As a result, new applications for the program have been placed on hold, while DACA has remained intact for current recipients. Hainan is hearing arguments today from the state of Texas over the Biden administration's shoring up of protections for current recipients. If Hainan strikes down the Biden rule, the fate of the country's nearly 600,000 current DACA recipients could be in limbo. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Noel in Houston. In Florida, jury selection continues in the trial of the school resource officer charged with failing to confront the shooter during the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that left 17 people dead. For member station WLRN, Gerard Albert III has more. Scott Peterson is charged with multiple counts of felony child neglect by a caregiver, perjury, and culpable negligence. Peterson claims that he did not enter the building to confront the shooter despite hearing gunshots because he did not know where the shots were coming from. Prosecutors say he did know, or at least should have, and neglected his duty and training by waiting outside the building. Jurors will need to decide whether Peterson, as the school resource officer, had a legal obligation to protect students and staff in the building. The trial could start as early as next week, and jurors may have to tour the building where the shooting happened. For NPR News, I'm Gerard Albert III in Fort Lauderdale. 
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Two members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Delegation to the House voted against the debt ceiling bill last night. Democrats Jim McGovern and Ayanna Presley both said they could not support the bill's included budget cuts. Presley called the debt ceiling compromise a false choice. The other seven members voted for the bill. Congresswoman and Minority Whip Catherine Clark said the bill will prevent a catastrophic default and protect everyday services Americans rely on. State officials say they are putting on a full court press to make sure Medicaid recipients don't lose health coverage. Adam Frenier explains. A pandemic-era rule which prevented states from dropping recipients of the health care benefit program is coming to an end, and now states must determine eligibility for all who are enrolled. That sometimes means getting updated information from people. Mike Levine with MassHealth, the state's Medicaid program, says the agency is doing more than just sending out mailers. You're not just getting a blue envelope. You're going to get a text. You're going to get a call. You're going to get email if we have your email. We want to make sure that members know on every channel that action is required in order for them to preserve their coverage. Not responding at all could mean an end to health insurance benefits. The state says it is also partnering with community groups to knock on doors to build awareness. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Today is the start of the Atlantic hurricane season. Forecasters are predicting an average year. Federal experts predict between 15 and 17 named storms could form in the Atlantic between now and November. Michael Souza is a meteorologist with the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. But it doesn't necessarily matter if it's going to be an above normal year or it looks like it's going to be more of an average or a below normal year just because it simply just takes one storm to really make an impact. A hurricane hasn't made landfall in New England since Hurricane Bob back in 1991. The latest effort to legalize happy hour in Massachusetts may not go far on Beacon Hill. Happy hours were outlawed in the 1980s. Opponents of legalization efforts say they're worried about an increase in drunk driving. The Massachusetts Restaurant Association is also not a fan of the proposal. It says the rule would skyrocket the cost of liquor liability insurance. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Surter Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at surterpro.com. That's Surter with a C. The Red Sox lost to the Cincinnati Reds 5-4 to last night at Fenway Park. The teams wrap up their three-game series tonight. Sunny today, upper 80s in Boston and the low 90s north and west of the city. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow with showers and storms in the afternoon, near 90 again. Cloudy showers and 50s for Saturday. It's 62 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at smartmouth.com.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C., where, after weeks of negotiations, the House has passed a bill to suspend the debt ceiling and keep the U.S. from defaulting on what it owes. In a GOP-controlled House, the compromise got more support from Democrats than from Republicans. But to keep the U.S. out of default, the Senate needs to approve the bill by Monday. To get the Biden administration's perspective, we're joined by Bharat Ramamurti. He's deputy director of the National Economic Council. Good morning and thanks for being on the program. Good morning. So I want to start with some critics within your party. A lot of progressives, including your former boss, Senator Elizabeth Warren, are really unhappy. She called parts of the deal, quote, really bad because of the work requirements for people seeking food relief, concessions on student student debt repayments, climate change, and no new taxes on the wealthy. What is the administration's message to progressives like Warren, Bernie Sanders, who will soon be voting on this? Well, look, as the president has said, this is a compromise, and a compromise means that uh, nobody gets exactly what they want. There are certainly elements of this uh, agreement where we share some of these concerns, where we think that uh, if it were up to us, we wouldn't have included it, but they were priorities for the Republican Party in, in a world where we have divided government. Uh, that's gonna, the, the deal is going to have to reflect that reality. Uh, I think ultimately the president felt like, number one, we needed to uh, have an agreement that took the possibility of a default off the table, which this deal does. Number two, uh, it was really important to him to protect Social Security, protect Medicare, protect Medicaid, all of which were under uh, attack by the Republicans in their initial uh, offer here, uh, and the the deal protects those things. Uh, And number three, uh, this really uh, helps preserve the economic progress we've made over the last two-plus years of this presidency. Remember, we've gained nearly 13 million jobs uh, under the president's watch. The unemployment rate is the lowest it's been since 1969. Uh, We want to make sure that uh, that economic progress can continue. The record-setting investments that the president has uh, secured in his first two years uh, continue to go about the country, uh, and this deal preserves all of that. So uh, we certainly respect the opinion uh, of every member of Congress, but we think that this is a good, fair deal. Do you see these as temporary concessions or something the administration uh, and something the administration plans to try to recover in future legislation? Well, yes, I think it at least opens the door or leaves open the possibility for uh, changes in the future, of course. Uh, for example, some of the reductions in funding for the IRS, uh, something that we didn't necessarily agree with, of course, doesn't foreclose the possibility of adding more money for that uh, a, a department in the future. But I think, uh, crucially, even in the short term, what this bill does is it allows us to continue to uh, advance the priorities that the president had over the last two years. On the IRS funding, for example, while there's a small reduction, the Treasury Department and the IRS remain confident that with the funding that we still have, we'll be able to continue to offer much better service to taxpayers. We'll continue to be able to uh, step up our enforcement uh, of uh, of uh, tax evasion on uh, the wealthy and big corporations who've previously been able to evade some of their tax obligations, we're still going to be able to pursue our core priorities. So uh, this is a, a deal that reflects the realities of divided government, a Republican-controlled House, but ultimately we think it's a good, fair deal that uh, protects the president's key priorities. What do you say to Democrats that say you never should have negotiated at all um, it, it, in connection to cuts with the debt ceiling? Well, I I certainly understand those views. I think the president uh, feels like um, it was important to take the possibility of default off the table in a definitive way. Congress has acted 78 times previously uh, in this country's history to uh, suspend or uh, increase the debt ceiling. 
Uh, that is the foolproof method of addressing this. And in order to get that, the president needed to sit down with his counterparts in the House. Uh, ultimately, I think what we got here was a a good, fair agreement um, that, while while taking the possibility of default off the table, also uh, was able to to secure the president's key priorities. So, um, every year you have to do a negotiation over the budget. Um, we did one last year with Democrats and Republicans, came out with a fair deal, and we think ultimately. The deal that and the president secured is, is very similar to the ones we've gotten in the past. Before I let you go, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says with the passage of this bill, he made history. Uh, do you do you see it that way? Well, I think that uh, there were um, important priorities, president important priorities for the speaker reflected in this deal. Uh, we think that we have uh, secured a level of funding for domestic programs that allows us to continue to pursue our priorities. Uh, we were glad to see uh, the continued funding for veterans' medical care, and as I said, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, mm -hmm. uh, no cuts to those programs as the Republicans initially wanted. So but we think we were able to secure some of our key priorities. And, and if the Speaker thinks that he's gotten what he's got, uh, wanted to gather this, um, that's why you see uh, bipartisan support for the deal in both uh, the House and hopefully in the Senate. Bharat Ramamurti is the Deputy Director of the National Economic Council. Thank you for your time. Thank you. While the debt ceiling deal is moving ahead on Capitol Hill, some Republican presidential hopefuls are dragging the compromise President Biden helped craft in negotiations with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Fox News. Our country will still be careening towards bankruptcy. Former President Trump said he would have taken the default despite lifting the debt ceiling himself as president. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott will have to vote on it. He says he's a no. We're going to be hearing more on this soon from some well-known Republicans who are expected to announce next week that they're entering the GOP presidential race. Joining us now to talk about all of this is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hi, Domenico. Hey there. So what do you make of the politics behind how the debt ceiling vote played out? Well, it's clearly a big win for President Biden and for Speaker McCarthy, you know, notably because this bill gets both of them past the 2024 presidential election, right. meaning they won't have to deal with this debt ceiling uh, crisis again during this Congress. It also helps Biden again, you know, burnish his image as a deal maker, someone who's targeting the middle, which is really key for his reelection and something he's trying to do. And just look at who voted for this and who didn't. I mean, three quarters of Democrats, two thirds of Republicans voted for it. But some of the biggest names on the left and right tend to grab most of the attention and the headlines did not. And yet it still passed overwhelmingly. You know, the Republican presidential candidates against this are really out of step with most lawmakers in their own party. And they represent a solid majority of Republicans in the country. But the hardest right, the most conservative, that's who these candidates are catering to in this primary. But undoubtedly, this is a big win for the pragmatists in Congress, the lower key lawmakers, who are clearly the majority. And that really does tell you something. Yeah, and some Republicans who would count themselves among the pragmatists are about to jump in. What's the latest there? Yeah, it's going to be a busy week next week in the Republican primary. We're expecting to see three presidential announcements. A source close to former Republican Governor Chris Christie uh, confirmed that Christie will announce Tuesday in New Hampshire. Then we expect on Wednesday we'll see two announcements, one from former Vice President Mike Pence, and the other is a name I'm sure we all immediately recognize, Doug Burgum. Okay, well, he oh. is the governor of North okay. Dakota and happens to be a billionaire, so money's not going to be an issue for him. This is starting to become a pretty crowded field, but the one who continues to take up most of the oxygen is former President Trump. Is there any room for these new candidates, especially Christie, considering how out of step he seems to be with Trump's base? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a very different party than the one Christie was a star in a decade ago. So he faces an uphill battle for sure. His people are pretty clear-eyed about that when I talk to them. You know, they tell me that Christie feels like he needs to do something to try and turn around the direction of the party and where it's gone under Trump. And that takes someone recognizable and able to prosecute the case against him from within the party. Since Christie has the notoriety, they say, he should be able to meet the polling and fundraising requirements to get on the debate stage. And maybe, maybe he catches fire in a place like New Hampshire. But the reality is right now, this is a Trump-DeSantis race. And we're seeing the attacks ramp up against each other. Trump has relentlessly been hitting DeSantis, calls him to sanctimonious, attacks him on taxes, his governance in Florida. DeSantis just said yesterday, you know, laughing it off that his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Are you kidding me? You know, but already they've spent tens of millions of dollars on ads targeting each other. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. You're welcome. Nearly 6 million Americans are looking for a job or looking around for a new gig. And some applicants go through interview after interview before getting a job offer. Kasogo Jackson is an author in Russell, New Jersey. A consulting firm invited him to apply for a job and then called him in for seven interviews. The problem was that it started as three and then it was another one added on and then it was another one added on, each one given less and less notice. And after all that work... He didn't get the job. Jack Kelly is founder and CEO of the recruiting firm, The Compliance Search Group. He says hiring managers have a number of reasons to hesitate. We're worried about a banking crisis. We're worried about possible recession. So companies are scared to make a decision. So they're slow walking the process. I think a lot of them don't even want to hire. They don't want to spend the money. They want to hunker down because they're afraid what's going to happen in the future. They're not certain. And when companies are uncertain, they tend to pull back. Kelly warns the process can be long, drawn out, and demoralizing. You have to anticipate it'll probably be anywhere from three to six to even 10 interviews. It could go on for three to six months. There'll be a lot of times that you don't get any feedback whatsoever. After Jackson's seven rounds of interviewing, he was over it. It was just a very frustrating process, especially to end with kind of being ghosted, only to be contacted six months later with like a very lukewarm apology. So this sounds a bit like going on a bunch of dates with someone who is just not that much into you. I know what that feels like. So we called a dating coach who used to recruit on Wall Street. Megan Wex says with interviews and dates, it's all about the vibe. When people can feel you're warm, they're going to immediately feel more trust for you than they would if you were holding back than if you were guarded or if you were uh, bracing yourself for rejection. And Wex says it helps to know when in the corporate world to say no to a situationship. Just as in dating, it's important to set a boundary. And as goes with dating, do you really want to be with someone who's uncertain about you? Or do you want to find someone who feels more certain that you're a fit for them? Kosoko Jackson eventually found the right fit. He's now the social media director at a civil rights nonprofit. He only had to endure three interviews to get the job. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the state of Texas will be back in federal court today in its latest attempt to dismantle DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The program legally protects more than 580,000 people in the U.S. brought into the country as children. It's 719. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Avita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 16th, amrep.org. One virus causes more birth defects in American babies than any other non-genetic disease, but most people don't know it exists. She was very small and totally silent when she came out of me, and that was striking. I mean, it was scary. A mother's struggle to understand her daughter's diagnosis and why she wasn't warned. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point, today at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's a slow commute right now for people on the blue line of the T. There are delays of about 15 minutes. That's because of a train with a mechanical problem near Logan Airport. The T hasn't said how long the delays are expected to last. Sunny today with a high near 88. Tonight, mostly clear and a low around 65. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high back near 88. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. It's 63 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Charles River Apparel's warehouse event. Tomorrow and Saturday in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. And Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Remember the early days of the pandemic when we had to think about the risk of every social interaction when we left home? Those days never really ended for many people with chronic diseases or other disabilities. And now they're facing a new concern, the end of the mask mandate in Massachusetts healthcare facilities. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports. Each time she leaves home, Christine Mitchell grabs a black mask from her stash of KN95s. Mitchell was born with a genetic condition called Marfan syndrome. It weakens her vital organs. She suffered a failing heart valve, collapsed lungs, and blood clots. She's also at high risk of becoming seriously ill from COVID. When something goes wrong in my body, it goes very, very drastically and urgently wrong. (laughs) That's why when Mitchell is around other people, she always wears a mask. She doesn't go anywhere she has to take it off, not restaurants or even the dentist. This question of who gets to return to normal, I don't feel like I do. I don't feel like many disabled and immunocompromised people feel like they do. Especially since Massachusetts health officials recently ended the requirement that all patients, visitors, and employees wear masks in healthcare facilities. Mitchell says this could expose patients like her to COVID and other viruses. I don't really have the choice to avoid healthcare because if I don't get that care in a regular way, then yeah, there's very real risk that I don't survive that. There's also very real risk that if I get COVID, I don't survive that. And I just most sincerely wish that I didn't have to fear the place that I go to protect my health. Mitchell is among a coalition of patients, healthcare providers, and other public health advocates urging state officials to reverse course. They say unmasking is unsafe for everyone. Even healthy people have some risk of getting sick from COVID. 
Colin Killick is executive director of the Disability Policy Consortium. He says the end of the mask mandate disproportionately affects people who need frequent medical care. It's one thing um, to say, okay, well, you know, we're not going to have universal masking in, you know, movie theaters anymore. But if we don't have the right to go to the doctor, where do we have the right to go? Millions of people in Massachusetts have been infected with COVID, and over 22,000 have died. After a bump in cases over the winter, COVID infection rates and hospitalizations now are among their lowest points since the pandemic started. So State Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says it's safe to make masks optional in doctor's offices and hospitals. At this moment, if we're looking at the risk of COVID-19 transmission, even in a healthcare setting, the risk is extremely low and bringing the mask mandate down is following the science and the data that are available. Still, Killick worries about his friends with disabilities. COVID could be deadly for them. He says it comes down to this. Does society actually believe that the lives of disabled and immunocompromised people are worth saving? And are they willing to put up with a minor inconvenience for the sake of, of keeping people safe or aren't they? Right now, it's up to individual healthcare providers to set mask policies. And the biggest systems, including Mass General Brigham, say masks are mostly unnecessary while COVID is in a lull. That means patients have to request accommodations. Laura Sabadini of Weymouth is one of them. She has a connective tissue disease that makes her vulnerable to viruses like COVID. I now have to ask for special treatment, which is ridiculous. But that's what I have to ask for. And that is a long and isolating process. Sabadini asks her doctors to wear masks, and she tries to skip the waiting room and sit in her car before her appointments. Bioethicist and Dr. Lachlan Faro says health officials should pause and listen to patients like Sabadini. I think the single most important lesson all of us seem to have learned early in the pandemic is the people who are most affected by any decision need to be part of the decision-making process, or they don't have a reason to trust. State officials show no sign of changing the policy, but they say they're listening to advocates and will keep monitoring COVID data. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Cuban singer-songwriter Juan Carlos Formel of Los Van Van has passed away. The band was among the most influential from post-revolution Cuba, and Formel was a musical force of nature. Here's NPR's Jasmine Garst. Juan Carlos Formel was born in Havana into music royalty. His grandfather, Francisco Formel, was a conductor of the Havana Philharmonic. In 1969, his father, Juan Formel, co-founded the iconic Afro-Cuban band Los Bamban. But the younger Formel very much forged his own path. He studied and played with some of the greats of Cuban music, but felt stifled by the regime's control of the music industry. So he defected in 1993. While on tour in Mexico, he crossed the border, eventually moving to New York. His debut solo album, Songs from a Blue House, was nominated for a Grammy in 2000. He released four more solo albums after that. 
Que la luna se despierta cuando el negro está bailando para robarle una sonrisa y hacer luz de sus encantos. It wasn't until 2014, when his father passed away, that Formel agreed to become the bassist for Los Bamban. The band excelled at building on Afro-Cuban music with rock, disco, and hip-hop. NYU professor Carlos Chirinos says this is what made Los Bamban so special since their inception, the mix of tradition with new styles. Los Bamban took the popular music sound of rock and pop, kind of mixed it with the traditional charanga format that was originally just violins and flute. Their last album was a family affair. His brother Samuel plays drums and sister Vanessa is a vocalist. Formel was performing in the Bronx last Friday when he stepped away from his base. He was having a fatal heart attack. He was 59 years old. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. NATO is sending hundreds of troops to Kosovo to help quell violent protests after clashes with ethnic Serbs there left 30 international soldiers wounded. It's 7.29. The WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Legislation to raise the debt ceiling and prevent a default is headed to the Senate. The bill cleared the House last night with the support of most Republicans and Democrats. NPR's Tamara Keith says President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are applauding the House for approving the bill. The bill is a compromise, with opponents from both ends of the ideological spectrum strenuously objecting. But in the House, they were significantly outnumbered by those willing to support a measure that enables the government to avoid a catastrophic default. Biden, in a statement, said neither side got everything they wanted, but that's the responsibility of governing. He thanked Speaker Kevin McCarthy for negotiating in good faith and said the bill protects key priorities and accomplishments from his administration. Biden called on the Senate to move quickly so he can sign it into law. The projected debt ceiling X date is June 5th. Tamara Keith, NPR News. 
June 5th is when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned a default could occur. The Food and Drug Administration has approved a second vaccine to protect older people from the respiratory virus, RSV. The vaccine made by Pfizer is meant for those 60 and older. The first vaccine made by drug manufacturer GSK was also approved last month. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts gets its first Secretary of Housing today. WBUR's Dave Fanip has more on the swearing-in of former Worcester City Manager Ed Augustus. Augustus's job will be to solve the affordable housing problem in the state. His new position was created when Governor Maura Healey split the Executive Office of Housing and Economic Development into two separate offices. As Worcester City Manager, Augustus is credited with a major expansion of the number of affordable housing units in the city. Augustus spent eight years as city manager and two terms as Worcester's state senator. Prior to becoming the state's first Secretary of Housing, he was Chancellor at Dean College in Franklin, a post he held for less than a year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Compass Medical announced yesterday it would shut down all six of its health clinics on the South Shore. A statement blamed the shutdown only on a, quote, stream of challenges. According to the Patriot Ledger, Compass Medical was ordered to pay more than $16 million in a fraud case last year. It's unknown if that caused the shutdown. The Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals wants to get 2,500 dogs adopted by this fall. Mike Kiley is the director of adoption centers and programs at MSPCA Angel in Jamaica Plain. He says shelters nationwide are having to euthanize more dogs because there aren't enough homes. If people have a space in their heart and in their home, this is the time to fill it because dogs need people in Massachusetts more than ever. He adds that MSPCA Angel has taken in 10 percent more dogs this year than at the same time last year. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Red Sox bullpen couldn't hold a lead last night at Fenway. Boston lost to Cincinnati 5-4. The Sox will try to win tonight and avoid getting swept in a three-game series. In soccer last night, the New England Revolution and Atlanta United played to a 3-3 draw. The Revs will visit NYCFC this weekend. Clear skies and highs in the upper 80s today, low 90s north and west of the city. Still mostly clear tonight and temperatures fall to a low in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, highs in the upper 80s under mostly sunny skies. We may see see showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. It's 64 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In Houston today, a federal judge will again hear arguments about the legality of DACA. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program provides temporary legal status to immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. Texas is among the states challenging DACA, first started by the Obama administration more than a decade ago. Joining us now is immigration reporter Stella Chavez of member station KERA in Dallas. Stella, what can we expect in court today? What are the attorneys going to be arguing? So basically the attorneys for the civil rights group MALDEF, and that's the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, they're going to focus on two main issues. The first is that neither Texas nor the other states in this multi-state lawsuit have standing to sue. And so what that means is that these states haven't shown that DACA has caused their state any injury. For example, that DACA recipients aren't a financial burden. And the second issue they'll argue is that DACA is in fact lawful. So in other words, the federal government has the right to allow DACA recipients to stay in the country, uh, receive work permits, attend college, basically live here lawfully. Yeah. And this isn't the first legal challenge for the program. I know that Judge uh, Andrew Hainan ruled uh, nearly two years ago that DACA was unlawful. Yes, that's right. But it's complicated. It's been a very long legal battle going back several years. And after Hainan's ruling, it was appealed to the Fifth Court, which agreed with Hainan. Um, The Biden administration then fortified some DACA protections by finalizing a rule. And then the case was kicked back to his court. So here we are again, basically with Texas and the other states still challenging the the legality of the program. Yeah. Now for the 600,000 active DACA recipients, what does this all mean or what could it all mean for them? Well, a lot of them were kids when they were brought to this country. I mean, the oldest recipients are now in their early 40s. Some are married with families. They have jobs. They're actually teachers, health workers. Uh, They're in social services. And many of them have lived in the U.S. longer than in their home countries, and they actually feel more connected to this country. So some may not even speak their parents' language or speak it well. And it's been really stressful. A lot of people I've talked to have said that they They are constantly worried about their future. All right. So when might there be a ruling in this case? So observers say they don't expect the judge to rule right away. And when he does, it won't necessarily mean the end of DACA. So if he rules against it, it'll likely be challenged. We can expect more court dates. And in fact, uh, most people expect the case to end up back at the U.S. Supreme Court. And So while all of this is happening, current DACA recipients would likely get to keep their status, but new applicants would still be denied. So there's still a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, until Congress decides to act. That's Stella Chavez of member station KERA. Stella, thanks. Yeah, thank you. The Army is escalating one of its toughest and longest-running battles, the war against mold. A new plan of attack makes mold prevention a basic part of being a soldier. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Sergeant Major David Cutshaw walks into a barracks room for a routine inspection. He immediately looks up at the ceiling. That has the start. Is it? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, Sergeant Major. 
Cutshaw points at tiny black dots, together enough to maybe cover a dime, dotting a vent cover just inside the door. Mold. The residents, Private's second-class Aubrey Smith and Andy Ziegler, listen attentively. Since you're new to this, right, new to the Army, in hot, humid areas, right, mold and barracks tends to be a problem. The Army is using these routine room checks as a teaching opportunity about mold, which can cause health issues that vary greatly depending on the type of exposure and how susceptible someone is. The push started last year after serious mold issues forced more than a thousand BRAC soldiers to relocate from a cluster of barracks. A dozen of the buildings will be torn down. That and mold problems on other bases triggered an army-wide inspection of barracks, family housing, and offices. Mold was found and cleaned up in more than 2,000 places. Now the Army is bringing its nearly half a million soldiers into the fight. And the primary effort there is inform and educate them in terms of how to report. Lieutenant General Omar J. Jones leads Army Installation Management Command, which is responsible for maintaining thousands of buildings. So if they see mold or they have a concern, how do they tell someone, who do they tell to make sure that we can get the right experts there to help them? Jones says the Army-wide plan also includes standards for defining and cleaning up mold, training for remediation and inspection teams on each base, tracking mold issues with sophisticated software to identify trends, and giving higher priority to mold reports. Our standard, if someone is put in a, a work order request, someone is put in a report of mold, we will have a certified expert responding to them in less than 24 hours. The problem the Army faces is common. One study estimated 47% of U.S. homes had substantial dampness or mold issues. Another found 100% had mold on some surfaces. Mold is ubiquitous. Philip Ferry of the University of Central Florida is an expert on mold issues in structures. It's everywhere, all the time. There's mold spores everywhere. And he says the right amount of moisture on a surface can be the catalyst. How the spores get that moisture is what humans have to figure out and prevent. And it's often complicated. The cause of moisture that triggers, say, mold inside walls isn't always obvious. And whether a particular mold problem is serious is a big question. Take mold in bathrooms, a common issue in the barracks, and, Ferry says, in every home with a tile shower. Every single one because there's enough moisture there to support the growth of mold. So is that a problem or not? It's not really a problem for me because, I mean, a little bit of Clorox will fix it. For mold issues too big for the soldiers to handle themselves, work crews are brought in. The Army inspections found by far the most problems were on bases in the humid southeast, like Bragg. Base officials there say they're watching to see if the effects of educating the young soldiers are reflected in data on work orders. Meanwhile... If the caulk is gone, put a work order in, and they'll come out and they'll redo the caulk. That educating continues, one barracks room at a time. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. This is NPR News. 
It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, the latest on increasingly tense U.S.-China relations after Washington shot down a Chinese balloon and warned Beijing against supplying arms to Russia. Now the forecast, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says Boston has yet to hit 90 degrees this year, and we won't get there today, but we'll be close. With the sea breeze kicking in at the coast, expect mid-80s in the city this afternoon. North and west of town, hotspots highs in the low to mid-90s. Relief on Cape Cod will be in the 70s there. Sunshine for everyone, very similar temperatures tomorrow, but some showers and thunder are likely. Not everyone will see a storm, but it's a day to stay alert. Some downpours and rumbles start popping by early afternoon. Some showers will linger into Saturday, and the weekend features a significant change with highs only in the 50s. It's 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash changing lives. Cambridge Health Alliance says it plans to lay off 69 workers. It will also pause hiring for 170 positions amid post-pandemic financial troubles. Health Alliance officials tell the Boston Globe the company lost over $30 million in revenue this fiscal year. Boston-based Converse has a new president and CEO. Jared Carver is stepping into the role. Carver has been with the shoemaker for more than a decade. Most recently, he was vice president and general manager of Converse's North American region. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. In Kosovo, violent clashes are raising fears of a renewed ethnic conflict in the region. The violence started after elected ethnic Albanian mayors took office in the country's northern Serb-majority area following a vote last month. Local Serbs, an ethnic minority in Kosovo, rejected the mayors and protested. And Kosovo's police moved in, seized municipal buildings, and clashes ensued. Dozens of people have been injured in those clashes with police and NATO troops on one side and serve protesters on the other. NATO sending more troops to try to quell the violence. Joining us now is Igor Bozic, news director for TVN1 in Belgrade. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you, Leila. So what's the current situation in northern Kosovo? Well, the tensions are raised, uh, but uh, seems to be that this morning is um, uh, quite calm. So the Serbian um, minority, actually, the Serbian majority on the north of Kosovo, but not minority in Kosovo, is now 
are trying to protest and to demonstrate against the mayors uh, who are ethnic Albanians uh, because they were elected on the election uh, uh, when they boycotted, the Serb boycotted the election. So mm -hmm. they are protesting uh, uh, against that. Uh, they are coming into the offices uh, uh, which they uh, consider it's their ownership because uh, they are majority on that territory. And then, then they don't want to see the mayors from the Albanian ethnicity to be um, a kind of uh, governing their municipalities and they just want to reject them. And now when they appear with the Albanian flags on those uh, municipalities in these buildings, they uh, are protesting against that. And now uh, we are seeing uh, conflicts uh, between uh, Kosovo police and um, uh, K4 units. We saw that on Monday, uh, very heavy clashes, uh, dozens of injuries on the both side, on the K4 soldiers, and uh, yeah, it is still, still very uh, not secure Now area. this tension, how much of, of a concern is that it will get wider? And Serbia's president has put the army on high alert. What's Belgrade's stance on the violence? Well, uh, that's, uh, uh, we are seeing that as, um, uh, this is not the first time that he is doing that. Like uh, when, he's uh, when he saw attentions on the north, he wants to calm down and, um, and, and to send uh, more military troops on the border. But uh, we, right at this moment, we, we cannot see that uh, any kind of uh, conflict on, on the army level can escalate uh, right at this moment. Uh, Belgrade is now looking into the K4, so the NATO soldiers, uh, to prevent the peace uh, and uh, looking at the statements uh, from the K4 and uh, uh, from the US uh, officials on Kosovo and from the NATO, we are seeing that uh, there is a kind of uh, um, there is a kind of agreement that uh, KFOR will uh, solve up this uh, situation on the north. That's Igor Bozic, news director for TVN1 in Belgrade. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're with WBOR coming up at 820 on Morning Edition. NASA is enlisting top scientists and academics to help change its approach to studying unidentified phenomena. It's 749. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world. Our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community. Workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield. Think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. A bill to raise the nation's debt ceiling heads to the Senate after being passed in the House yesterday without the support of two Massachusetts lawmakers. A Russian missile attack in Kiev has killed three people in the highest casualty toll from a single attack in a month. And NASA is recruiting a team of scientists to help it systematically study unidentified phenomena, also known as UFOs. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Museum of Science. Visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at MOS.org. Upper 80s today under sunny skies. Mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, upper 80s again and mostly sunny, except for a good chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. It's 66 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. When writer Amelia Pazanza moved to Brooklyn, she found herself for the first time surrounded by queer stories on historical placards, on her LGBTQ swim team, and on her TV screen. But these stories were rarely about lesbians or lesbians in love. So Pazanza began a journey to uncover the romances and role models written out of history. NPR's Julie Deppenbrock has a story. Amelia Pisanza is a part-time writer and a full-time publicist. So I like to think of this project as me taking on being the publicist for lesbians. Her book, Lesbian Love Story, A Memoir in Archives, focuses on seven couples, each representing a different era in the 20th century. And they're not you know, traditionally well-known people. It's not, oh, here's the story of how Eleanor Roosevelt was secretly a lesbian, or here's the story of Emily Dickinson, who was maybe in love with her brother's wife. It's people who really kind of lived daringly and left some record of living a queer life. There's also a surprising amount about swimming in the book. Part of that, Pisanza says, could be her own bias— She swims for a gay and lesbian aquatic team in New York. Another part is just what it means to feel free in your body. One sort of unexpected thing that came up for me in writing is there's so much policing of what women, lesbians, queer people wore. And that policing actually became a way of just policing queerness in general. Today, we have drag bans in certain states. And before those existed, you know, before there was explicit terminology to ban these things, it was a lot of it was based on what you wore. And I think the beach was somewhere to be free of that, especially if you could find a nude beach, if you could be in the water. Pisanza didn't grow up with many stories about lesbians, but she says they're right there, even when the word is not used, even when that part of their story is erased. I come from a really nerdy family of readers. My father is a classicist and my mother is a librarian. And I think they very much raised me to believe that like, oh, if you're going to have an experience and you're nervous about it or you don't know about it, you can go read a book about it, right? Getting ready to go to school, getting ready to live away from home. There's all these stories to sort of guide 
you. And I realized that there actually weren't a lot of stories that I had about lesbians to guide me. And so I think doing this project made me start thinking about what gets you remembered, what generates records. You know, prisons generate records, governments generate records. You know, sometimes being in love <laughs> doesn't generate records. But Mary Casal and Mabel Hampton did leave records. Casal met the love of her life in a hotel lobby in 1892 and then wrote her own memoir. Hampton stayed with her partner for 40 years and lent her voice to the Lesbian Her Story archives, a New York City-based museum dedicated to preserving lesbian history. Too often, queer stories end in tragedy. But what binds these stories together is how these lesbians create pockets of safety, security, and community, even in the most hostile circumstances. Julie Deppenbrock, NPR News. And if you're looking to add something to your Pride Month reading list, Amelia Pazanza's book, Lesbian Love Story, a memoir in archives, has just been released. Many people only know New York City from songs, movies, books, and TV shows. NPR's Jennifer Vanasco says a new exhibition uses that pop culture to explore everything that makes New York a city that people both love and love to hate. Maybe you live here in New York, or maybe you're someone who feels like you've lived here because you've seen it on a screen so often. All right, we'll divide the room in half. The Museum of the City of New York is celebrating its 100th anniversary. This past century has been rich in pop culture, stretching from silent films and early phonographs to CGI and streaming everything. And then there's paintings and photography and fashion and books. The exhibit, This is New York, captures it all. Lily Tuttle is one of the curators. New York is kind of the most American and least American city. She says how people see New York City is messy. It's crowded, dirty, smelly, rude, cacophonous place, and also glamorous and wonderful and glitzy and fabulous and elegant and cool. It's all in here, all at once. The fictional and the factual blend together in this exhibit, like they tend to do in New York. Over here is a lamppost from Sesame Street. Over there, an Edward Hopper painting set in a lonely movie theater or a photo of boys jumping into the East River, or a 1953 film of an elevated train racing through the sky, set to Duke Ellington's Daybreak. Step on an illuminated outline of one of the five boroughs, and you'll hear a song from that borough. A song that's about New York, of course. This one's from Jennifer Lopez. She's from the Bronx. Or Wu-Tang Clan from Staten Island. Salt and Peppa, Anthony B, the Irish Rovers, or hey, I know you know this one. From Manhattan. Start spreading the news. In another room, take a book off the shelf, place it on a scanner, and here's Leah Delaria reading Harriet the Spy. Harriet looked through her peephole and saw both faces staring right at her. A third room surrounds you with 16 screens of film clips. They tell New York's story, which is really a story of destruction and redemption that belongs to all of us, whether you live here or not. 
Curator Lily Tuttle says that's thanks to the artists who've been inspired by the city. Once you move away from, you know, the hot dogs and the pizza and the dirty apartments and the subway, it's like, no, this city will always rise again because of the creativity that we're celebrating in this exhibition. Jennifer Vanasco, NPR News, New York City. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. It'll be sunny and hot today with temperatures in the upper 80s. Those fall to the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, about the same, mostly sunny and upper 80s. But there's a good chance of showers in the afternoon. It's 66 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And AL Prime Energy Consultant providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A compromise bill to avert a historic federal default is now headed to the Senate after the House passed it last night with bipartisan support. It's Thursday, June 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, hurricane season begins today, and forecasters say people need to realize that as sea level rises, places are going to flood that haven't flooded in the past. Even if they've lived in a location their whole life, that past experience is not necessarily going to be a good indicator of current or future risk. Also this hour, NASA is taking steps to use scientific methods to systematically study unidentified phenomena. The existing data available from eyewitness reports are often muddled and cannot provide conclusive evidence. Plus, as the number of teens using opioids goes up, California is debating whether they should have access to drug treatment without parental consent. Sunny and near 90 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The House last night passed the debt ceiling bill on a bipartisan vote, and it now heads to the Senate. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, time is of the essence to quickly pass the bill before a critical deadline next week. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reiterated that the bill represents a compromise and is a win for both sides of the aisle. We're finally bending the curve on discretionary spending because of this bill. And we're doing it while at the same time raising our national defense and our veterans fully funded. In debate leading up to the vote, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said Democrats voted to put people over politics. Under the leadership of President Joe Biden, Democrats kept our promise. The bill next heads to the Democratic-controlled Senate, where Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has promised quick action. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. 
More Republicans are jumping into the presidential campaign. NPR's Domenico Montanero reports the field of candidates is starting to get crowded and could get even bigger. Half a dozen major GOP candidates are already in and campaigning. Three more are expected to announce their bids next week, including former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Vice President Mike Pence. Christie's expected to get in on Tuesday in New Hampshire. The next day, it'll be Pence in Iowa. Sources close to Christie acknowledge his odds are long, but they believe someone needs to more forcefully and directly make the case against former President Trump. So far, though, this race has been largely dominated by Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who have already spent tens of millions of dollars in TV ads against each other. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky joined European leaders at a summit in Moldova today, making the case once again for his country to be a part of NATO, while reiterating calls for Western fighter jets. Speaking at the European Political Community Summit this morning, he talked about Russia's latest attack on Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, that killed three people, including a child, and says his country needs more military aid to up its air defense. A coalition of petrols that will put an end to Russian blackmail by ballistic missiles and a coalition of modern fighter jets that will prove that terror against our city has no chance. Meanwhile, at another NATO meeting in Norway, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says members agree that Ukraine must be added to the alliance and that Russia can't veto that. President Biden is in Colorado to deliver the commencement address at the U.S. Air Force Academy today. More than 900 cadets will graduate. It's the third time Biden's made the commencement address, but the first time as president. U.S. futures contracts are trading in mixed territory at this hour. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Seven of the nine Massachusetts Democrats in the U.S. House voted for the debt ceiling bill. That includes Congressman Jake Auchincloss. He says he disagreed with parts of the bill, but that governing requires compromise. Representatives Jim McGovern and Diana Presley voted against the deal. Both said they could not approve the proposed budget cuts included in the bill. Advocates for people at high risk of getting sick from COVID are renewing a push against new state masking rules. They say the move to make masks optional in healthcare facilities puts people at risk. And as WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports, they're asking the state to reverse course. Colin Killick leads the Disability Policy Consortium. He says people should mask up in healthcare settings to protect the most vulnerable patients. Does society actually believe that the lives of disabled and immunocompromised people are worth saving? And are they willing to put up with a minor inconvenience for the sake of, of keeping people safe or aren't they? COVID numbers are low and state officials contend the risk of getting infected in a hospital or doctor's office is also low. But they say they continue to talk with advocates and follow COVID data closely. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. The Massachusetts Attorney General plans to start enforcing the state's right to repair law today. Car companies tell the Boston Globe they're against the rule because it could compromise auto data security. The law requires car makers to give vehicle information to independent repair shops and consumers. It was overwhelmingly approved by voters back in 2020.
Today is the start of Pride Month, which celebrates the LGBTQ plus community. Boston is getting ready for its first full-scale Pride Month celebration since 2019. It was canceled by the pandemic in 2020, and last year there was no citywide parade because its organizer, Boston Pride, ended operations. Mayor Michelle Wu says that a new group is ready for this year's parade on June 10th. Pride for the People, a new group that has formed with a a vow and um, mission to be fully inclusive. They have been working very closely, not only with the city of Boston, but with the many, many advocacy organizations representing the LGBTQ community to get that event going. The mayor will raise a pride flag at City Hall later today. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. The Red Sox have now lost three in a row. They fell to the Cincinnati Reds 5-4 to four last night at Fenway Park. The Sox and Reds will wrap up their series tonight. Sunny today, upper 80s in Boston and the low 90s north and west of the city. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 60s. Sunny tomorrow with showers and storms in the afternoon, near 90 again. Cloudy showers and 50s for Saturday. It's 66 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fazil in Washington, D.C. Coming up, we learn about how NASA is taking a scientific approach to the study of unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAPs. That's the fancy new name for what the rest of us call UFOs. A lot of reported UAP sightings end up being drones or aircraft. Some have yet to be identified. But before we get to that story, we'll start with the uh, debt ceiling bill. With overwhelming bipartisan support, the House of Representatives passed that bill last night. So the compromise negotiated by President Biden, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, moves ahead, putting the U.S. one step closer to avoiding a potentially disastrous debt default. The legislation now heads to the Senate, and if passed, it would defer the federal debt limit for two years. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt was there and joins us now. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. So, Barbara, it took weeks and weeks of what seemed like relentless negotiations to get to this bill. What did its passage look like last night? Well, the bill passed by an overwhelming margin with bipartisan support. The important numbers to focus on are actually about the party breakdown. There had been this question going into the vote about whether Democrats would supply just enough votes for it to pass and avoid a default, or if they'd want to bring a large show of force in support of President Biden. So that margin was always a question. In the end, more Democrats actually voted for the bill than Republicans. Now, very conservative Republicans and progressive Democrats had lots of complaints about this bill, saying it either didn't go far enough on spending cuts or it went too far. All that was expected. That's the nature of a compromise bill. So what is this votes say about McCarthy as speaker? Well, you know, I've been talking to members in his conference throughout this process, and many really praise him for, in their view, really driving the negotiations with the White House and sort of forcing President Biden to negotiate on things that he initially said he wouldn't, like spending caps and expanding work requirements for federal safety net programs like food stamps, for example. There was speculation, you know, given the amount of time that it took uh, him to become speaker back in 
January, everyone remembers those uh, epic days of voting one after another, <laughs> you know, there was a sense, there was some speculation that like maybe his hold on his conference is a little more tenuous, but he's emerging, you know, having just negotiated um, a pretty significant uh, compromise deal. And, you know, McCarthy himself was pretty elated about that last night. This is one of the best nights I've ever been here. I thought it would be hard. I thought it'd be almost impossible just to get to 218. He's talking about the number of votes needed for passage there. You know, he told reporters he doesn't think it's a big deal that more Democrats back this bill than Republicans. He said he promised two-thirds of his conference would support it. He delivered on that. But some Freedom Caucus members who didn't vote for the deal have expressed concerns that this ended up being more of a win for Democrats than Republicans. So this could fuel some more unrest among conservative Republicans who were against this deal to begin with. Now, there have been questions, you know, in light of that about whether there could be a motion to vacate, which is essentially a member calling for a snap vote to oust McCarthy. But McCarthy was asked about this last night directly. He said he's not worried about losing his gavel at all. Okay, so now it goes to the Senate. Is it a foregone conclusion that this deal will pass before Monday, which is when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen predicts the U.S. will no longer be able to pay its bills? Well, Republicans and Democrats on the Senate side are working to see if they can reach an agreement to speed up the process and get this moving as early as today. Now, of course, the Senate won't be without its own drama on this. Of course, yesterday we saw Utah Republican Mike Lee and Vermont Independent Bernie Sanders on the Senate floor sort of blasting the legislation, pledging to vote against it. Um, but as you said, that deadline is real. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said senators will stay over the weekend if they have to in order to vote in time. That's NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Relations between the United States and China, the world's biggest economies, are at their worst in decades. But reducing American reliance on China has been a tough sell with some U.S. business leaders. During a visit to Shanghai this week, billionaire Tesla CEO Elon Musk said the interests of the two countries are, quote, intertwined like conjoined twins. We turn now to Yale University's Stephen Roach. He outlines a new roadmap for this relationship in his book, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. Stephen, I looking at the art of the cover of your book, five pairs of red and blue arms intertwined. It kind of reminded me of Musk's quote, intertwined like conjoined twins. Uh, Do you see any way for the U.S. to break its dependency on China economically? No, I don't. Uh, Without a a trade war, a tech war, and now a cold war possibly getting even hotter, I think that um, what's really missing here is uh, an architecture for engagement, how we talk to the Chinese, how we deal with issues like trade, economics, innovation, uh, human rights, uh, climate, cyber, global health. We don't have an existing uh, framework of engagement, and we need a new one. And I just wrote an article about that over the weekend. If self-reliance, then, Stephen, is a fantasy, how about less reliance on China? Well, we're trying to be cute here. We we have uh, given a new word to uh, what um, pure self-reliance or decoupling would mean. We call it de-risking. But that's like your previous presenter just said, uh, they, they renamed UFOs UAPs. It's the same <laughs> concept. When you take a component that you used to get from China and you get it from Vietnam, that has decoupled uh, that supply chain linkage. Don't kid yourself and try to call it de-risking. Does this go back to Richard Nixon's visit to China in 1972? I mean, I mean it, it thawed relations, it opened up China to U.S. trade, but is that where all this kind of got its start? 
Well, that that visit in 1972, Nixon and Kissinger is is the sort of the dawn of creation of the modern uh, relationship. But ever since then, the the relationship has been managed on a very personal basis between leaders, and that reflects, I think, a delicate interplay between personalities, egos, and domestic politics. We need a a deeper, more institutionalized uh, relationship, and uh, my proposal uh, tries to to achieve that. How much does China rely economically on the U.S.? Because it seems like it, it's uh, kind of on par with how much the U.S. relies on China. It's a two-way dependency or a codependency. China relies on us uh, for our large and deep market of consumer demand. They're an export-led economy, and they need that. But we rely on them for the cheap goods they give us to make uh, ends meet for consumers. They, they're a huge buyer of our uh, treasuries, and they're the third largest and most rapidly growing U.S. export market. So we both need each other. So considering we both need each other, as you say, Stephen, could that serve as a, say, deterrent for aggression uh, either way? Well, it has historically. Uh, economics and trade has long been the anchor of the U.S.-China relationship that has served the purpose of um, uh, of limiting confrontation in other areas. But now both um, uh, countries and their leaders are are more focused on security rather than economic and trade, and that is uh, a you know, more of a worrisome confrontational structure to their relationship. You mentioned Elon Musk's visit uh, earlier. He's a, a high-profile name, so that visit was going to get a lot of attention. But when, say, high-profile brands such as the NBA, when when the NBA invests billions of dollars in the Chinese market, does that give us more of a clue of how tough the U.S. can really get in opposing? policies from China? Over the years, U.S. businesses have really um, recognized uh, the dual um, benefits of um, investing in China. They get a more efficient production, um, uh, offshore production solutions from, from their offshoring, and they uh, also get the opportunity to tap the world's richest and deepest market. But um, those um, advantages are now slipping, slipping away as we focus on security. Stephen Roach is a senior fellow at Yale's Law School's China Center. Stephen, thanks. Thank you. NASA has convened top scientists and academics to discuss unidentified anomalous phenomena. Don't know what that is? That's because it's the new name the government has given to what we call UFOs. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports on the effort to bring science to the hunt for E.T. Astronaut and former fighter pilot Scott Kelly remembers his brush with an unidentified flying object. He was piloting an F-14 Tomcat. And my Rio thought, the guy who sits in the back of the Tomcat, was convinced we flew by a UFO. Kelly turned the plane around and made another pass. It turns out it was a balloon. Kelly is now a member of a NASA panel trying to make sense of sightings of so-called UAPs. A new Pentagon office has received more than 800 reports. Most of those turn out to be aircraft, drones, the occasional Chinese spy balloon, but about 2 to 5% remain unidentified, meaning they could be aliens. Probably not. Maybe? Enter NASA. The nature of science is to better understand the unknown and to do that, our scientists need data. 
Nikki Fox is Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate. This panel is trying to figure out how to systematically study UAPs. One problem? The existing data available from eyewitness reports are often muddled and cannot provide conclusive evidence. But panelists also believe the public could help. Federica Bianco, an astrophysicist, says that if NASA builds the right tools, like a UAP reporting app, it might improve the data and public engagement. This could be an opportunity to really increase the reach of science, help people understand the scientific process, and maybe diversify the scientific community by attracting new talent. In other words, studying UAPs could do a lot of good even if NASA never finds aliens. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. The NBA Finals kick off tonight. In their first trip to the Finals, the Denver Nuggets will face off against the Miami Heat. Denver fans are excited and anxious. That story later today on All Things Considered. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, as hurricane season begins today, we hear from the new director of the National Hurricane Center, Michael Brennan. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. One virus causes more birth defects in American babies than any other non-genetic disease, but most people don't know it exists. She was very small and totally silent when she came out of me, and that was striking. I mean, it was scary. A mother's struggle to understand her daughter's diagnosis and why she wasn't warned. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's On Point today at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Get our daily newsletter, WBUR Today, delivered to your email inbox every morning and stay on top of the news. Today, learn about the enforcement of the state's new right to repair law for cars and get a list of the 16 restaurants and beer gardens in Boston that let dogs on their patios. Sign up at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Sunny today with with a high near 88, tonight mostly clear and a low around 65. Tomorrow mostly sunny with a high back near 88. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. It's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. 
the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Mount Athos on the Athos Peninsula in northern Greece may be the holiest site in all of Orthodox Christianity. The region is semi-independent from Greece. Locals refer to it as a monastic republic. And the monks who live there control their own finances, which can make it very attractive for Russians who want to convert rubles to euros. NPR's Yulian Haida reports from Greece. Nearly two dozen monasteries cling to the sides of Mount Athos. Ancient buildings peppered with cupolas rise high above the Aegean Sea and are dwarfed only by the holy mountain rising in the background. Inside, monks from around the world keep a rigid schedule of work and prayer, mostly inside of richly frescoed churches. You'd think they'd be chanting in Greek, but you're just as likely to hear Russian here, sometimes of a distinctly political nature. This video posted by one monastery has a deacon chanting prayers for, quote, our revered President Vladimir Putin, his government and military. Russian President Vladimir Putin and his friends frequently visited the monasteries on Mount Athos. And among many Russians, it is revered not only as a place of meditation, but for some more earthly reasons, too. During a 2016 visit, Putin said he was proud to have funded a lot of the projects on Mount Athos. Cyril Hovorun knows quite a bit about Athos and Russia, and he has some thoughts about why Putin may be interested in investing there. I meet him 90 miles south of Athos at a sunny seaside cafe in the Greek town of Volos. He drifts seamlessly between Ukrainian, Greek, Russian, and English, which is very useful if you want to stay abreast of wartime European geopolitics. But there's something else that makes him uniquely qualified to follow the money in this case. He's a priest. An Archimandrite, actually, which is a prestigious title he was given for years of service to the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russian intentions are not pure. They are not philanthropic. But for the better part of a decade, he's researched some of the coercive tactics the Russian church has made with its allies, like sending money to Greece with strings attached. Some monasteries have uh, a justification for themselves that, well, we may receive this Russian money in order to do some charitable work. And some of them, some, sometimes they do. But still, this money is dirty, and this is a bribe. Archbishop Job Getcha is a high-ranking official in the Patriarchate of Constantinople, the institution that oversees Mount Athos. In Russia, many oligarchs, they are quite used to use the church as a way of laundering the, the money. He says fake construction contracts and donation schemes are common. Knowing their practices, I wouldn't be surprised that they do the same on Mount Athos. Russian involvement on Mount Athos didn't draw much attention until Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Under a new EU sanctions regime, Greece's money laundering authority took a critical look at Russian finances flowing into the monasteries. Last fall, the government found dozens of wire transfers from Russia, many in the range of six to seven figures. 
Certainly, the monks are not involved in illegal activities. Tastanasi Martinos, the government-installed law enforcement administrator on Mount Athos, he says there's no reason to investigate Mount Athos. I think it's a gross exaggeration. The monks are devoted to their religious uh, functions. I mean, they are, they are quiet. I think they pray for peace. But Martinos is also the owner of one of Greece's largest shipping companies, Minerva Marine. Last year, Ukraine named Minerva Marine as a, quote, leading sponsor of terrorism for shipping millions of barrels of Russian oil to market. Greek journalist Yanis Soliutis from the daily newspaper Katemereni broke the Mount Athos money laundering story. He says that wealthy Russians panicked when the EU began to sanction Russia. And even though none of the people flagged by the Greek money laundering authority are sanctioned because of the war, there's no way of knowing if that money changed hands within Russia before getting sent to Greece. Suliuti says that there were documented cases of sanctioned Russians doing similar transactions before Russia invaded Ukraine last year. NPR also spoke with the Greek money laundering authority as well as officials close to the church. They all said Russian money is a known issue. In many ecclesiastical institutions, the finances are very opaque. Archbishop Job again. They will show you what they want to show. The monasteries on Mount Athos are not required to file financial reports with the Greek government, and Greece's money laundering authority does not have the staff to investigate suspicious financial activity on Athos. Churches are basically structured like mafia organizations. Investigative journalist Alexander Masavetas wrote a book on Russia's influence in Greek society through the church. church appeared as a very convenient Trojan horse to influence and sway Greek society towards Russia's ends. He points to one example, a number of influential pro-Kremlin media outlets based on Mount Athos monasteries, including one affiliated with Russian businessman Konstantin Malofiev, who was sanctioned by the U.S. and EU for funding the war in eastern Ukraine. We were suddenly flooded with internet pages which sort of functioned like Putin's speakers. Russia still remains relatively popular in Greece compared to how other EU countries view Moscow. Masaveta says that social divide in Greece is perhaps why the political will to look into potential money laundering or sanctions evasion just isn't there. I call sometimes Putin a master of cracks. Back by the Greek seaside, Father Cyril Hovarun says that sort of Greek ambivalence is something that Russia has excelled at exploiting. So he tries to find a crack within a given social body, a society, and tries to widen those cracks. And the European sanctions regime is just one crack that's widening. Julian Haida, NPR News, Athens. This is NPR News. 
Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, how a Chinese-language magazine founded by a New Jersey couple in the early 1990s has retained its independence and become a lifeline for new immigrants. It's 829. The next WBUR Virtual Community Advisory Board meeting is Wednesday, June 7th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at wbur.org slash open meetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO Secretary General says the military alliance must guarantee Ukraine's security when Russia's invasion ends. But Jens Stoltenberg says how to make that happen is still being debated. Stoltenberg spoke earlier today in Oslo to NATO foreign ministers. The most urgent and important task now is to ensure that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation. Uh, President Putin, Russia must not win this war. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Moldova today, attending a security meeting of European leaders. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is in its 16th month. The Senate is preparing to take up legislation to raise the debt ceiling and prevent a default. The bill cleared the House last night as most Republicans and Democrats voted to support it. Dozens of lawmakers from each party voted against the bill. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy following passage. Is it everything I wanted? No. But sitting with one House, with a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic president who didn't want to meet with us, I think we did pretty dang good for the American public. The Congressional Budget Office says the legislation will save $1.5 trillion over 10 years. 71 House Republicans voted against it, saying the bill didn't go far enough to rein in spending. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Part of the deal to raise the debt ceiling includes ending the pause on student loan payments. They've been told they've been on hold since the start of the pandemic. Senator Elizabeth Warren says Republicans want to charge people for the interest on those loans, despite the freeze on payments. Nearly 40 million Americans who are saving an average of $233 a month from the pause would be called on to cut a check to the government for months of retroactive student loan payments plus interest, all because they relied on the United States government's statement that their loan payments were paused. If the pause ends, payments are expected to resume by the end of August. Boston must invest millions of dollars to protect against coastal flooding. That's according to a new report commissioned by a group of waterfront businesses in the city. The report recommends more than $800 million worth of flood barriers. It also suggests elevating parts of the harbor front. The city is currently working with the Army Corps of Engineers on its own flood protection plan. 
Some kids in Massachusetts are getting ready for the start of summer, which means the start of summer camp. The YMCA of Greater Boston reports that spaces at its camps are filling up. Kate LeMay is the executive director of the group's overnight camps. What happened with the closures of schools and the access to digital devices that kids have today more than they've ever had has really created an opportunity where I think getting away from your phone or getting away from your iPad or computer, spending time in nature with other kids is is a really important thing. LeMay says it hasn't been too hard to hire camp counselors, but like many other Massachusetts organizations, the group is still looking to hire lifeguards. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. The Red Sox bullpen cost the team another win. They lost to the Cincinnati Reds 5-4 last night at Fenway. The teams will wrap up their three-game series tonight with Boston trying to avoid the sweep. In soccer last night, the New England Revolution and Atlanta United played to a 3 Three draw. The Rebs will visit NYCFC on Saturday. Clear skies and highs in the upper 80s today, low 90s north and west of the city. Still mostly clear tonight and temperatures fall to a low in the mid-60s. Tomorrow highs in the upper 80s under mostly sunny skies. We may see showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Atlantic hurricane season begins today. Forecasters are predicting about half a dozen hurricanes between now and the end of November. And this year, the National Hurricane Center has a new leader. Michael Brennan takes the reins as climate change makes hurricanes more dangerous. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk sat down with Brennan and is here now to talk about it. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Okay, so start with what the National Hurricane Center does. Is it something people encounter in their daily lives? Yeah, the evening news, newspapers, radio, weather apps, and your phone, they all use the information from the National Hurricane Center. So this is life or death information, which is why I wanted to talk to the new director of the National Hurricane Center, because climate change is making their jobs harder. In what way? How does climate change affect hurricanes? So basically, hurricanes are more likely to be large and powerful, and they're more likely to drop dangerous amounts of rain. And on top of all of that, sea level rise from climate change makes storm surge more dangerous. And I asked Brennan about this specifically. As sea level rises, places are going to flood that haven't flooded in the past. So if people are are uh, basing their risk on what they've experienced, you know, even if they've lived in a location their whole life, that past experience is not necessarily going to be a good indicator of current or future risk. And Brennan says his team is thinking about this every time a storm is headed for the U.S., you know, trying to make sure that the dangers of climate-driven storms are clear to the public. 
What about some of the other effects of climate change, like when hurricanes rapidly intensify? We've seen that happen a lot in recent years. Yeah, it's happened over and over. Um, Hurricane Ian rapidly intensified before it hit Florida last year, so that would be top of mind for people there. The year Mm -hmm. before that, it happened with Hurricane Ida when it hit Louisiana. Brennan says that scientists are still trying to figure out how to predict when a storm will rapidly intensify. So that's still a work in progress scientifically. But in the meantime, his forecasters are trying to communicate the risks more clearly so that people have as much time as possible to prepare. That's a a really important part of of setting the message and the tone from the very beginning, especially for a rapidly developing storm like an Ian or an Ida that forms and makes landfall within three or four days. We were able to to basically from the initial forecast on say this storm is going to be at or near major hurricane intensity from the very outset. And so we were able to sort of set those expectations from the beginning. And he says, like, literally every word in a hurricane forecast is chosen deliberately. That is one way to convey the growing risks. It's to use new, you know, scarier words. Um, You know, we've used some pretty strong language in previous years. We used words like unsurvivable. As in, the storm surge will be unsurvivable. Wow. So these scarier words indicating how much scarier these storms are getting. What does Mm -hmm. this all mean for this year's hurricane season? What do we expect to come? Well, forecasters are predicting about half a dozen hurricanes, and that's in addition to tropical storms, which have less wind but can cause really terrible flooding. That is basically a normal number of storms, but of course climate change makes things more dangerous. So the message from forecasters and from emergency officials is take hurricane season seriously, even if you haven't been affected by a hurricane in the past. And that means make a plan for how you would evacuate, think about getting flood insurance, and take the forecast really seriously. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks. Fentanyl is behind one in five deaths among youths in California. There are many barriers to treatment for opioid addiction, but some kids can't get help because they need parental consent. A bill making its way through the state legislature could change that. It's passed the assembly and is now before the state Senate. Here's Leslie McClurg from member station KQED. Hey guys. Most afternoons, Charlotte Blue teaches preschool in San Jose. I won't peek, I promise. (laughs) She's grateful to have her life back on track. A few years ago when she was 18 years old. Had a plan one day to try to commit suicide. And my plan was to use fentanyl to do it. Her home life was in shambles. She was addicted to heroin and crystal meth. That night, she smoked fentanyl for the first time. She overdosed. Her friends had to use three doses of Narcan to revive her. And that was just the beginning of her spiral into fentanyl addiction. Every time she tried to quit... Ugh, I was itching. I had cold sweats. I was throwing up constantly. Every few days, I would just give up and smoke again because I couldn't handle the feeling of of the withdrawals. Eventually, she had enough. I lost my car. I lost my friends. I kind of lost touch with myself. A county drug counselor helped Blue enroll in a new treatment program for youth. They were there for me when no one else was. They helped me get on Suboxone to get off of the drugs and help with the withdrawals. Suboxone is the brand name of buprenorphine. It comes as a pill or a film that dissolves under your tongue. And it binds to the opioid receptors in your brain. But it doesn't activate them all the way, so it doesn't get you high, but it does prevent withdrawal symptoms. Dr. Lee Trope is a pediatrician in San Jose. 
we've been shocked by how many teens and young adults in the community have come to us, you know, sort of desperate for help. Some of them are using every two to three hours, like 10 fentanyl pills a day. Fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. Suboxone is approved for addiction treatment for youth over 16, but Trope says she often can't prescribe it to many of the adolescents who need it. It's not uncommon that they're living on the street. Many of them are living with grandparents or aunts or uncles because their guardians are in the grips of addiction themselves. California requires youth to be 18 to take Suboxone without parental consent. A new state bill could change that. But it's facing some opposition because it would allow minors to access Suboxone at 16 without mom or dad. I'm not personally comfortable just letting minors on their own at 16 years go to a doctor and get this type of medication. Bill Asaley is a Republican state legislator. He worries the proposed bill will encourage kids to hide their addiction from parents. It's too sweeping, it's too broad, and it covers a bigger class of people and minors than the bill is intended to target. He would rather see much narrower legislation limited to kids who are estranged from their parents and focused on social services. Back in San Jose at Charlotte Blue's preschool. I like Miss Charlotte. I like Miss Charlotte. She's a good teacher. She's not sure she would be here today if she had needed her parents' permission when she started Suboxone at 18. My parents were very against it, actually. They thought that it was an easy way out. They still believed that it was a drug to make me high. She tried to explain that Suboxone doesn't make you feel euphoric, but they didn't believe her. She's grateful she didn't need their buy-in. Aw, you guys are so sweet. When she's not with the kids, Blue is in community college studying dental hygiene. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg in San Jose. If you or someone you know needs help, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR News. You're starting your day with WBOR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report gets reaction from economists to the debt limit bill that was passed by the House last night and heads to the Senate today. Now, the forecast, WBOR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says it's the first day of meteorological summer and it's going to feel like it. Low clouds and fog this morning burn off, giving way to sunshine. Highs in the low 90s north and west of Boston this afternoon. The city itself, a sea breeze will kick in, holding our temperature back a bit in the mid-80s. 70s on the Cape. Tomorrow, very similar. Hottest north and west around 90. Low to mid-80s at the coast. Cooler on the Cape, but it's a day to be weather aware. Building clouds will yield some showers and thunder. Quick downpours, rumbles from early afternoon onward are likely, but they break the heat with a dramatic change in temperatures for the weekend. We're only going to be in the mid to upper 50s both days. It's 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy. Committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go EndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. American Airlines plans to appeal a court ruling that would force it to dissolve its Northeast alliance with JetBlue. JetBlue is the largest airline at Logan Airport. The alliance allowed the two airlines to coordinate schedules and share profits on flights in and out of Boston and New York. Federal officials say there's no evidence the partnership helped consumers. 
Developers want to build a hotel on Stanhope Street in the Back Bay. New plans filed with the Boston Planning and Development Agency include a 300-room hotel. The plan needs to be approved by the BPDA before construction can start. There's no timeline for when it may be up and running. Taking your family out to the ball game, those peanuts and Cracker Jack will cost you. A new report from the Sporting Post finds Fenway is the most expensive ballpark experience in Major League Baseball. A family of four would pay, on average, $375 for tickets, concessions, and parking. Arizona is the least expensive in the league. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm e. Martinez. Ethnic media outlets can be a lifeline for new immigrants who don't have a firm grasp of English. They introduce their readers to civic life in America and to each other. That's just what an independent magazine has been doing for decades in New Jersey, which has one of the country's largest Chinese-speaking populations. Here's NPR's Mary Yang. The pages of Sino Monthly come together in a one-story office building neighbored by single-family homes in Edison, New Jersey. Sorry, my office is small. Editor and founder Ivy Lee is at her desk on the morning of their print deadline. Copies of previous issues sit around the room. She points out last month's cover story. They look like 40, but they are 70 years old. It's about a friend group of older Chinese women who share their secrets to staying young. We interviewed them, whether they eat, whether they exercise, whether they do to keep them young. That's something her readers would want to know, Lee says. Also in that issue, a profile of the new White House Deputy Assistant for Racial Justice and Equity, Jenny Yang, who grew up in New Jersey with Chinese immigrant parents. A black and white proof of next month's edition teases a feature on Edward Tian, the Princeton student who coded an app to detect ChatGPT. Lee says her magazine is like milk. Milk is healthy. Milk is inexpensive. And you can get milk everywhere. I was either at a Chinese school or a medical office, where I was surprised to see a handful of the magazines. Jennifer Liu, whom I met at a tea festival, doesn't remember exactly where she first came across Sino Monthly, but she remembers being happy to see it. I just moved to New Jersey and thought it was great to have the local information. Sino Monthly and other ethnic media outlets don't aim to be papers of record covering all the news fit to print. They cover news, culture, and politics that matter to their community. Tal Young, a librarian at Rutgers University, maintains an archive of all Sino Monthly issues since the first in 1991. He walks down to the basement where the magazines take up four rows of one large bookshelf. He says they'll be useful for future historians. They can understand the conditions in the community. Uh, even advertisements are useful. Sino Monthly stands out among the Chinese language press for its independence. Yang says many other outlets have ties to the Chinese government or spiritual groups like the Falun Gong. The magazine's nonpartisan, but promotes participation in U.S. elections. One October 1994 article ahead of the midterms reads, Which means, please, please cast your sacred vote. 
Current print subscriptions, which go for $12 a year, hover around 10000 Researcher Anthony Advincula, who studies ethnic and community media at Montclair State University, says staying small has kept these news outlets alive. The general market, it's always with the bandwagon, like, oh, let's go digital. Everybody goes digital. For ethnic media, he says, most ad revenue comes from print. Immigrant business owners, their main market, want to see themselves in paper. But the pandemic was hard for Sino Monthly, and Lee worries about the financial picture ahead. My business is started at a ground zero, so I know how to survive. Lee's husband retired from his full-time job a few years ago. She's been searching for a successor. But for now, she's not done. Mary Yang, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a report from Australia on a former national military hero there who is now accused of killing civilians in Afghanistan. Plus, the special orchid relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. The brand Tupperware long ago sealed its spot in American kitchens as a synonym for storage. Tupperware becomes a kind of iconic example of home life and domesticity. But it may not have locked in the viability of its business, which is on the brink of bankruptcy. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The U.S. Senate will take up the debt ceiling legislation after House lawmakers approved the bill last night. Ukraine's president is again pushing for his country's entry into NATO as Russian attacks continue in Kyiv. And arguments begin today in federal court over DACA, the immigration program granting legal status to people brought to the U.S. as children. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Upper 80s today under sunny skies. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. As the debt ceiling legislation heads toward approval, what will caps on spending do to or do for the wider economy? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. I'm David Brancaccio in Los Angeles. 
A bipartisan coalition in the House of Representatives last night voted to allow the government to keep borrowing money to pay what it owes over the next two years. 71 Republicans and 46 Democrats were opposed. The bill puts in some spending caps and prevents funding for many so-called discretionary programs from rising. The bill is expected to now go through the Senate quickly to avert a potentially catastrophic government default that would otherwise happen within days. With the U.S. on course now to enter a period of capped budgets, there remain escalating needs. This week, our series Finding Your Place is exploring approaches to homelessness. Today, it's a connection to the strong U.S. labor market. Many government agencies and nonprofits are having a hard time recruiting staff to help people get off the streets and into stable housing. Here's Marketplace's Matt Levin. <laughs> Leticia Rosales is covering the front desk at the Hope Cooperative's Outreach and Engagement Center in Sacramento. It provides 24-7 services to people experiencing homelessness. When we met, she was celebrating a permanent housing placement for someone who had been with the center for 117 days. Yeah, it's like a graduation, you know what I mean? You see them start from their first step on to the next step. Rosales makes about 22 bucks an hour as an outreach worker. She was homeless as a kid and says this job makes her feel good, but it's not for everyone. It's a high rate of turnover, but I feel like the ones that actually get it, like get the point of working with the people are the ones that stay. Finding the ones that stay is as tough as it's ever been, says Hope Cooperative CEO Erin Johansson. About 10% of her positions are basically always vacant. We have a full-time recruiter. She spends all day every day trying to find us the right people. There's really no good national statistics on the shortage of homelessness workers, but anyone in the field will tell you it's a problem. A study focused on L.A. County found that workforce needs to grow by 20 percent. And post-pandemic, one particular type of worker has been really hard to get. A licensed clinical social worker. People with master's degrees in social work, or MSWs for short, are trained to work with people with mental illness or substance abuse issues. Donna Gallup teaches in the MSW program at Azusa Pacific University. Right now, there's tremendous competition for social workers, and there are much more lucrative and much more pleasant work settings. Like schools and hospital systems, which typically offer better hours and less stress. While Gallup says higher pay for homelessness workers would obviously help, many of her students need more exposure and support. Gallup runs a pilot program that places master students with Southern California homelessness agencies. They're entering a sector with their eyes open. Many people who do go into the sector go in and are very surprised you know, disenfranchised, not understanding. Those are some of the reasons that people burn out. Gallup says the early results of the pilot program are promising. While the official data isn't out yet, anecdotally, it looks like MSWs who participated are sticking with it. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. Part of our series this week called Finding Your Place, New Thinking for People with Nowhere to Live, marketplace.org, if you miss the pieces on the air. With the official hiring and unemployment reports due tomorrow, there's news just now that a private tally of payrolls finds hiring in May was much higher than expected, 278,000 more people getting paychecks. The strong jobs market staying strong. 
S&P futures are up a tenth percent. Dow futures are down two tenths percent. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says the bill to cap federal spending in exchange for averting a government default cuts outlays by roughly one and a half trillion dollars over 10 years. Marketplace's Justin Ho fits this into the wider economic picture. Government spending certainly can influence the economy. Look at all the relief checks the government sent out early in the pandemic. Many of those went straight into the economy. So on the flip side, reduced government spending can cause the broader economy to slow down. Thing is, the debt ceiling deal in Congress right now leaves a lot of government spending untouched, like Medicare and Social Security. Instead, it focuses on capping non-military discretionary spending, which includes money the government uses to fund different agencies. So economists say the effect on the broader economy will be pretty minor. The economy is still strong, and it could absorb any small spending reductions. But let's not forget that the deal would expand work requirements for certain government benefits. One concern is that any additional hurdles could cause fewer people to receive those benefits, and that affects more vulnerable consumers. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Grammarly. Grammarly Business empowers companies to drive faster results with secure enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence that works where teams do. It helps businesses break down information silos, collaborate efficiently, and quickly adapt to stay competitive. Grammarly.com slash business. Amazon has agreed to pay $31 million to settle charges that it improperly handled data when children used its Alexa voice assistant. Also, Amazon failed to safeguard videos of people recorded by its Ring security cameras. In one case, an employee viewed thousands of videos of women in their homes. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. The Federal Trade Commission says Amazon will pay a $25 million penalty to settle the Alexa case and nearly $6 million for alleged privacy violations at Ring. Regulators say videos collected by Ring cameras were not properly safeguarded by the company, and an employee in 2017 was able to view thousands of videos of women in private spaces, such as their bathrooms and bedrooms. The FTC also said that Ring's security practices were so lax that the company was an easy target for hackers. In the Alexa case, the FTC says Amazon held on to some children's voice recordings and geolocation data even after parents requested that the information be deleted. The company allegedly used that data to train its Alexa algorithm. In a statement, Amazon said it disagreed with the FTC's claims and denied violating the law. The company said Ring had long ago addressed its cybersecurity issues, and Amazon agreed to make what it characterized as a small modification to how it handles children's Alexa profiles. I'm Nova Salvo for Marketplace. And in Los Angeles, I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. It'll be sunny and hot today with temperatures in the upper 80s. Those fall to the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, about the same, mostly sunny and upper 80s. But there's a good chance of showers, maybe a thunderstorm in the afternoon. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, WorcesterArt.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. 
Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.